0: I think if we had laid off people earlier, we would have extended our runway past December. But when it was actually brought up that we need to lay people off, I couldn't accept it because it's not that they are doing their jobs badly. It was just because I couldn't like pay them. And I was being so emotional. I was like, no one is telling me anything. I'm going to fix this. And I'm going to like bring in more money. And we are going to like keep these people. And then our chief operating officer she called me and I was like, we actually have to like lay off people. We've gone one month, there's no money yet. We can't keep being optimistic. I remember like you know, I cried. I was like, oh my God, I built out in a really great team. And to see actually everyone go was really, really painful.
1: Welcome to Crypto at Scale. My name is Justin Norman. And in today's episode, my co-host Guerra Kiwana and I welcome LaserPay's Njoku Emanuel to the show. As you may know, LaserPay announced that it would be shutting its doors in April of 2023, the startup which was founded at the height of the crypto bull market in 2021, and to much fanfare around Njoku, who was just 19 years old at the time, promised to bring seamless crypto payments to Africa. But since it shutdown, a lot has been said in the ecosystem about the company and shortcomings. So we wanted to get the story
2: directly from Njoku himself. If you enjoyed this episode of Crypto at Scale, please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app and share with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. This episode of Crypto at Scale is brought to you by Ripple. Anyone who sent money across borders to or within Africa knows how cumbersome, expensive, and slow the process can be. When it comes to remittances, Sub-Saharan Africa remains the most expensive region to send money to. And for businesses, trapped capital, slow settlements, and high failure rates pose major challenges. The current financial infrastructure just doesn't work very well for the modern global economy. Ripple believes that crypto-enabled payments can help. Ripple's payment solution, on-demand liquidity, enables organizations to settle global payments in real time at a fraction of the cost and without tying up working capital and destination accounts. By leveraging the digital asset XRP as a bridge currency, funds can be sent and received in local currency on either side of a transaction. And across Africa, Ripple is partnering with local financial institutions and fintechs to bring the benefits of better cross-border remittances to the region. To learn more and get in contact with the Ripple team, head over to Ripple.com.
3: Njoku, thank you so much for joining us and for your willingness to tell your story. We'd like to start at the beginning of this story. It was 2021 and you had many lucrative opportunities to work in the global crypto ecosystem that you ultimately chose to leave aside to build LaserPay. Can you tell us what the vision for the company was and when you and your co-founders set out to build in the early days?
0: Thanks a lot for having me, Guerra and Justin. First off, I was already working in the global crypto space. At the time, I was at MakerDAO, which is a leading centralized finance institution. I was also contracting at Nestcoin as a senior blockchain engineer. So the whole idea of app came up in, I think, somewhere around like June, July 2021. And then I called, you know, my co-founder, Abdul, who was our CTO and told him about the idea to like, you know, build a crypto payment gateway pretty much like, you know, blockchain payments part infrastructure. I think then we're calling it a smart contract enabled infrastructure for payments, right? That would actually make it easier for merchants to accept payments in crypto and also make it easy for like people to actually spend their crypto. he told me that, oh, that he was already doing something like this, that it aligns pretty much with what's, what he's working on and the next week he was in dubai and you know we pretty much started building it out that's how we started that's how we started off just i and abdul building out the core infrastructure of laser and building out the platform and then we brought on like justice who eventually turned to like you know become our lead engineer to like you know handle everything like you know front-end related and also like you know our lead product designer and also We got a third co-founder who would be in charge of business development and operations, why I focus on like you know the products and Abdul focus on like you know the technical bit of things. So that's pretty much how we started. And then sometime in August, it was actually like you know becoming real. The platform was all coming together in like in a very short period of time. And then, you know, I told Yale about it. I told Yale about my vision to actually enable people to get crypto to like that point where people are comfortable, like, you know, spending in crypto and wanted to like you know show people that. Crypto was not just an asset for trading. You could actually use it as part of your daily lives, right? And to also show merchants that they are actually restricted by their borders because they only sell or they only accept payments in their local currency, right? But then they can actually have access like the entire world, right? By accepting stable coins as you know, a means of payment. And Yele was sold by the idea. And then he made an investment in LaserPay. And that was our first ever investment. And then he told me that... I'm actually building a business and it's totally different from just building a product or just leading an engineering team. So I had to leave Nest coin and like, you know, quit my other jobs, which I actually had and turned down all the other offers I had to like, you know, focus full time on on LaserPay.
1: And in Njoku, so I know all told you raised about a million dollars and then, you know, you had some pretty good initial traction, you know, it was a bull market and the company grew pretty meaningfully in, in terms of headcount. I think you said at the peak... It grew to 15 people. So can we just talk a little bit about that period of time? So you set out, you raised some money, the company grew, you had some traction. Like how was the business doing and what was that year or two like for you as you were building the business?
0: I think at peak, our headcount was around 24, 25. So we actually grew that large in such a short period of time. But then in that time where we actually like really like, you know, our headcount and stuff, We were focused heavily on product development. So at the time, we focused mainly on two things growth and marketing, and basically putting the brand out there, letting people know that, oh, crypto is not a scam. This is what you can actually use crypto for. So we needed to, like, you know, do a lot of education for them to even say, oh, okay, I want to actually like, you know, integrate this on my platform to accept payments. And then the second pillar we actually focused on heavily, which I actually led was product development. So we actually wanted to like be the best product out there. And then I usually call LazerPay like, you know, the pay stack for crypto because I really love the pay stack engineering culture and actually how they ship excellent products. So for us, getting a product that works was a priority and we kept on iterating. We, we like, you know, onboarded a few businesses. We actually like, you know, got like these businesses like, you know, start transacting. While they were transacting, we're talking to these businesses directly and iterating on like, you know, our platform, right? Like the version one of LaserPay and what LaserPay looks like today is a whole lot different. So like my focus at the point was basically heavily on product development and like, you know, making sure that we never have, you know, any downtime on like, you know, engineering since we're like a business where we're actually like, you know, building APIs for like businesses. We had this zero tolerance for any failure around like, you know, our engineering or product bit of things, right? So that was pretty much what, you know, we focused on. And then we also onboarded quite like, you know, a number of businesses, right? And these businesses we onboarded were basically like, you know, through oh, founders that I knew that were pretty much like that we saw like, you know, use case for like their business or like people that actually just found us online, actually, like, you know, we got a lot of traction from businesses that found us online instead of like, you know, using us, especially businesses that... We're not in Nigeria, which was actually like our core target audience and our like you know, our core focus markets pretty much. We didn't do any heavy sales or BD at the early stages of laser pay. So like, you know, six months in, we weren't like, you know, really doing much business development or sales. We're pretty much focused heavily on product development and building the product. Right. So that was our core focus at peak so yeah that's like pretty much how the business was shaped at like the early stages and we kept on hiring people mostly people on like the product team and also like you know the growth team as well we didn't really focus much on hiring anyone on like the bd or sales team right until like later in 2022
3: that sounds like an interesting arc and honestly, I remember back to that time, we were all, you know, in on, on lockdown. COVID was ravaging the world, but crypto was just on fire. Like people were buying NFTs. Like I was, you know, using stable, like learning about stable coins, starting to use stable coins in 2021. And things were kind of taking off. It was a really exciting time. But we do know that at some point uh, in 2022, things started to trend downward. And we started to see a bit of a bear market, which coincided with, an also downward trend for LaserPay uh, yourselves. So this is roughly when you announced company layoffs in November of last year. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening in terms of traction and uptake of the product and how the, the you know, going from bull market to bear market was for LaserPay?
0: During the bear market, we actually saw traction on the platform itself, right? Like our highest number of transactions and like, you know, total processed volume at the point was pretty much, you know, during like, you know, the bear market. We saw a lot of huge amounts of money moving like, you know, within and outside like, you know, LaserPay. I'm going to like you know give a bit of context around like why it seemed like you know the beer markets was pretty much the most terrible for us. So from 2021 down to like you know 2022, right? Like we had a high bond actually, investing a lot in product development, we're investing a lot in security, like we did a ton of audits on like you know our smart contracts and like you know our APIs, and then we're also investing in growth and like you know event marketing as well. So like our bond was high, and at the rates which we're going at, right, like, you know, it happened that at the time when we needed to, like, you know, scale pretty much because of, like, you know, the volumes we started seeing, that was also the time where we needed to, like, raise more money to actually have, like, enough runways to, like, carry us through, like, you know, the beer market. So before we even started, like, raising funds, like, you know, started, like, you know, proper, like, seed round, our metrics kind of changed, right? At first, revenue wasn't top of my list, you know, I'll be honest, revenue wasn't top of my list at first. So in the beer market, we actually hired a head of partnerships. And when she came in, a lot of things around business development and sales, like, you know, changed in the organization, right? We had a proper sales structure. Maybe I should have done that since, like, you know, day one. I think, like, one of my biggest mistakes wasn't bringing her on early enough. So we had, like, you know, head of partnerships, like, you know, there was actually, like, the employees within the organization, everyone within the organization could actually feel like there was this change in terms of, oh, we are actually making money. We're actually, like, bringing in businesses that actually brings in like you know volumes. So that was why I said like, you know, the beer market was actually the period where we had like the highest number of transactions, right? That was actually when we like, you know, hired like this head of partnership. She became like my right hand man and actually took out a lot of pressure on me in respect to like, you know, business operations, right? So she basically was filling in for the role of a chief operating officer. And you know, operations internally and externally got extremely better. So we started thinking about other business models, right? I think this is also something that, you know, I wasn't thinking about early on, right? Where we're just making money on incoming payments, right? But then we now started thinking about ways where we could leverage our architecture and leverage like, because we built an entire blockchain infrastructure suite, right? So we started thinking around how we can leverage this to make more money, we introduced like, you know, our on-ramps and off-ramp features, right? Like, you know, the APIs part and like, you know, liquidity parts. We also like introduced instant swaps, So you can swap between like, you know, stable coins as well. So we also started building out components that were going to like, you know, lead to a subscription-based business. That was around the time we started raising, you know, our seed round. So I thought we were raising our seed round. So I went out to like do the fundraise pretty much. So taking us back to like the $1 million raise, we raised 400 k earlier in 2021. And then we raised 600K in addition to like, you know, the 400K around like very early 2022. That was going to be like, you know, the beginning of our seed round. So we it, you know, ramped up growth so that we can actually go back and like, you know, raise more money to actually expand our runway to execute what we had. So we onboarded like a couple of businesses that, you know, we're going to do up to a million dollars in transaction volume, which translated to like Ten thousand dollars in, you know, revenue for us, right? Like baseline revenue for us, and we onboarded like, you know, five, six of these businesses. So that would have like, you know, translated to like, you know, fifty to sixty k in revenue for us, like, right? These businesses actually integrated our platform. Some for like off ramp and on ramps. Some for like, you know, crypto payments, which was going to be where a chunk of, you know, our revenue was going to come from. But then we ran into like a major blocker, and at the time when these businesses were supposed to like go live. Then we realized that their compliance shut it down. And then we realized that, oh, that's, you know, regulations in our market is actually like, you know, the core problem that will actually like, you know, run into and be like, you know, the biggest blocker. So that was pretty much like, you know, what happened around that time where we we're basically like, you know, building a beer market, raising money and trying to like, you know, structure our operations properly.
3: One thing I want to pick out of that story, because that, that sounds like such a crazy time. Like you guys... Like in Choco at heart, you're a hacker, right? You and your team are hackers, you guys are engineers. you just want to get in the weeds, build the really cool things and you you did that right and one thing that i I really want to make sure that comes through with this story is that that was what you started with. you really wanted to build a good product and you built a phenomenal product right and then just so happened that a bear market came, and that's also when you were when you were raising and then started having to think about commercials and all these other things. But the beauty of that time sounds like. You found that product market fit, which is something that we talk about a lot at the, on this podcast and in our work even. Joku, you and I have talked about it before. Is this thing about the utility of crypto and specifically stable coins. When I first heard about LaserPay, what blew me away was that you guys clearly on the website said, we're only touching stable coins. And that click right there, that that's exactly what is really the utility of crypto for payments in Africa, is, is making it easy to understand, easy, easy to use. So it's really great that you guys were able to do that. Can you... Tell us a little bit about, there was a time, obviously, in that, that you started to, you moved from hacking to now building a business. And, and one thing really that was talked about in the media in the last few weeks is about the inability to sell to enterprises. So I don't know if this was fair or not, but there were some titans in the industry like E from Future Africa who brought up the topic of your age and alluding to that being a factor in in missteps, like a lack of focus on selling to enterprise. From what it looks like, it sounds like you were building and learning in real time. So can you tell us a little bit about that time, please?
0: My age has never come up In any business meeting that, you know, I attend, right, like, you know, I get into rooms where people that are way older than me can't, like, you know, even set their foot like close. So I don't think the problem was my age. No one ever asked how old I was at the time. And instead, like, I I think my age was even like, you know, a good factor for us, right? Because, you know, the time when partners or investors actually care how old I was at the time. They, they were really surprised at what we were able to, like, you know, achieve or what I've been able to, like, you know, achieve at that young age, right? So I would say the age was a good factor in the progress of Pay and not necessarily, like, you know, the reason why the business didn't work or why, like, we basically ran out of funds and stuff, right? As you said, like, it was a very new experience for me and I was learning on the job, right? Like, before LaserPay, right, what I did was leading product teams and, like, you know, building out engineering products, right? But then starting to think of, like, you know, stuff like fundraising, finance, legal stuff, I was actively learning on the job. And I'm grateful that I actually had great mentors and great partners who didn't, like, you know, look down on me because of my age. But, like, you know, they actually, like, you know, taught me how to, like, go through this process. And also around the comments that my age was basically the reason why, like, you know, we couldn't sell to, like, you know, enterprise businesses. I don't think that's actually, like, true. First off, no matter how old anyone is, like, you know, what matters in any room is pretty much the amount of knowledge you have at the point and, like, you know, how much value you actually bring to the table. So that was what people were looking at. Not necessarily how old I am, right? Like, what matters to me? I don't even think about my age. What matters to me is pretty much how much do I know about this particular subject and how much network do I actually like, you know, have as well. So I would say I never think about my age. So it's like, I see a problem, I'll go out and like, you know, I'll build a solution for that problem. And I wouldn't wait until I'm 50 before I start solving problems, right? Life is all about learning, and you actually like, you know, learn on the job and you learn as you go. So with respect to like, you know, selling to like, you know, enterprise, the major problem around our business not working or us not like being able to like, you know, scale was not... The fact that we couldn't sell to enterprise. We tried selling to enterprise in Nigeria, but like when I told you about the number of businesses we were on boarded, that we were going to like you know bring in you know over 60k in revenue, right? When our head of partnerships came into like you know man business operations, right? We realized that the problem was not even selling to these guys, the problem was like regulations, right? So we underestimated the impact regulations could actually have on our business and not us not being able to sell to enterprise, right? We spoke to So I think like I've told you this where around like, you know, who we actually spoke to during the course of like the business, right? Like think of like the biggest payment gateways, you know, in Africa, in Nigeria, right? We got into the room with like the highest person in the organization and we sold to them. But then the problem was compliance always shuts it down because the regulatory framework around crypto in Nigeria, which was our core market, was not clear at all. And these enterprise businesses, they don't want to, like, put their business in harm or, like, put their business at the mercy of, like, the central bank because they wanted to, like, add crypto to, like, their offerings, right? So that was the problem. And we realized that late. We realized that, oh, you know, maybe we would have not started from the African markets. Maybe we would have started from, like, you know, the Middle Eastern markets, right? Regulations was actually, like, you know, the biggest problem we faced and not being able to sell to enterprise of my age. You've articulated it
3: so well. Like, I always say that if someone tells you that they're a crypto expert, they're lying to you, you know, like to be an expert, you have to be doing this thing for like 20 years, right? That means that we're all learning this stuff in real time, especially people who are brave enough and bold enough to build businesses in this space. And and that's something that was really commendable. I think something that we don't appreciate much about founders of crypto startups is they're really pioneers and even companies like MFS Africa, like, you know, Stripe, for example, Visa, larger incumbents who are now embracing crypto are doing it a lot slower and a lot more deliberately. But like that can only have been done by people who were forging a path early and learning these lessons that you learned already. So one thing I want to kind of touch on is how commendable it was that you chose to be radically transparent throughout this whole time. You were upfront, honest on Twitter in interviews about like what we were building. You shared news and learnings as they happened and you continue to do so. And I think that one thing that was commendable is, is that you did that with bad news. I think that's something that you should be very proud of, I think, when you guys had layoffs last year and the shutdown. So in an ecosystem where this isn't the norm, can you tell us a little bit about your decision to be transparent as, as a core value for LaserPay and, and especially blockchain, for example, public blockchains, that by definition... They're transparent, they're public. Can you tell us about your thinking about the ethos of transparency at LaserPay?
0: Yeah, so when we actually started LaserPay, again, like, you know, I look up to, like, Shola of Paystack and Yele of, like, you know, Nestcoin, right? These are, like, people who are, like, you know, mentors to me, right? So when we started out LaserPay, right, like, you know, I was working at Nestcoin at the time. So the way I wanted to operate, I wanted to, like, you know, operate, you know, a flat organization where anyone can actually have access to me anyone can actually bring up something and say oh this thing that we are doing doesn't make sense or this idea is stupid like you know this is how we can make it better that was the core of like the culture wanted to like you know create a lizard we actually did that and you can't create that kind of culture and stay hidden or like you know not being like you know transparent right so i saw how like you know yele was transparent i also saw how like Paystack and like, you know, Shalai is actually like, you know, transparent. And I'm like, for me, like, I don't have like, you know, anything to like, you know, hide. One of the things I want is like, you know, for other like founders or for like builders in this space to come out and like, you know, actually like talk about what they are building and like be like an open book pretty much. And then like, you know, you can actually see people that are willing to like help you. Right. So transparency for us was core because we needed to like build certain cultures that like, you know, laser pay. Our metrics were pretty much public both internally and externally to our investors, right? Like it was connected directly to like, you know, our database. So if someone makes a payment of $1, it goes there and you see like, you know, $1. So we weren't hiding anything. Like, you know, you could actually see like, you know, our bond rates, how much we're spending, what we're spending on uh, and how that progressed. So I was very, very open with, I think I started with being very, very open and honest with like the team. And that actually like set the path for me to like, you know, be transparent in the public as well, because I'm actually building stuff. And I'm building stuff in a new industry. So like, we don't know it's all right. It's like, you know, we learn, we learn as we go. So for us, in general, I wanted to like, you know, build a very open culture at LaserPay. So for us to like do that internally, I myself as the leader of like the organization, I have to like be hundred percent transparent.
1: So Njoku, I want to move forward just to the decision to close down. I guess I'm going to be the bad guy and bring up all the painful decisions. But of course you made that announcement in April. And again, I think, You know, the fact that you came right out and did it publicly is a brave thing and I'd imagine a very tough thing. It sounds like there was a lot of learning lessons, some things you would do differently with respect to the seriousness of the challenge of regulation and related to your burn rate and some of the things that you spent money on in in advance versus, you know, sort of later on the greater focus towards sales and building out business operations. My question to you is, if there was any alternative paths to shutting down that were considered, you know, I think that there was some reporting, I don't know if it's true or not, about a valuation that you guys were unwilling to budge on as well, which made it difficult to fundraise. So I'm curious to hear from you, what was the sort of set of criteria that you considered in advance before deciding to shut the doors in April?
0: Remember I said we started raising funds, right? And first off, the thing about like, us not like, you know, budgeting down to like reduce the valuation is totally false. We had a proposed lead investor. And then, you know, we're raising at a $50 million valuation. So yes, we're raising at a $50 million valuation. And then, so we signed the term sheets, they were doing DD, like due diligence, like, you know, took like, you know, four months and also like went past that. And like, you know, it was pretty much time for them to like, you know, wire the money because we had already like, you know, gone through like the DD process. And again, like I said, we're very transparent from day one. It's like, you know, look, this is what we have strongly. This is our strength, which is product building. We are actively like, you know, working on setting up like, you know, proper business operational structure, which was doing well at a very small scale and like, you know, hindered by regulations and look at how much we're actually making. And if we're able to, like, you know, onboard XYZ businesses, we're also, like, you know, making plans to pivot the market focus down to, like, the Middle East, because I have, like, a large network there as well. And, like, the Middle Eastern market is not as, like, strenuous as, like, the Nigerian markets. We respect, like, regulations, right? So we already started making plans to, like, even hire someone that would actually, like, lead growth and kind of, like, you know, and sales, like, in the Middle East during, like, you know, this process. So, you know, we realized that, all oh, regulations is a blocker like, what can we do? How can we fix that, right? And I accept that we actually realized that like, you know, really, really late, right? So we started looking into like the Middle Eastern market and we had all like, you know, lists of prospective businesses and I had already reached out to like, you know, their CEOs, like, you know, people actually leading like, you know, the organization we were targeting. So we're very transparent with all that, like, you know, during this process, right? And then they came back later and was like, you know, the market is really bad that the valuation doesn't work for them anymore based on like, you know, the analysis, this is the valuation that works. And I called the meeting with like, you know, my co-founders and like, you know, the core management. At this point, we needed money. And at that point, valuation didn't matter to me anymore. I just needed to like, you know, save the business and because we had something great going on. I just needed to like, you know, save the business. And then I remember like, you know, when they actually sent the message around like, you know, valuation doesn't work for them anymore. I remember I started like panicking. I was freaking out. It was as if like the entire world was coming down my head. I say like, you know, calling all my investors pretty much. I called Shalai, I called Yele, I called the guys at 4DX to tell them, like, you know, the situation of things and stuff. So plan A was pretty much, like, reduce the valuation as much as possible, cut down bonds, like, the barest minimum, reduce the valuation, right? So we did that, reduce reduced the valuation, went back to them, you know, we were like, oh, they would get back to us and stuff that are keen to, like, you know, invest, even with, like, lower valuation and the excuse was, like, you know, the market and, like, you know, that was the time where the crypto market was also crashing. So we're able to, like, extend our runway down to, like, December. I think if we had, like, you know, laid off people earlier, we'd have extended, like, our runway past December. But when it was actually, like, you know, brought up that we needed to, like, you know, lay people off, I couldn't accept it. I was like, does it mean that these guys are, like, you know, going to go out of, like, you know, their jobs, right? Because it's not that they're doing their jobs badly, It was just because I couldn't pay them. And I was being so emotional, I was like, no one is telling me anything i'm going to fix this and i'm going to like bring in more money and we are going to like keep these people so that was the first thing that happened right like i refused to like you know lay off everyone then like our head of partnership became like you know our chief operating officer and you know she called me i was like we actually have to like lay off people right like we've gone one month there's no money yet we can't keep being optimistic right like we need to like you know lay off people I remember like, you know, I cried, right? Like, you know, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, I built out like in a really great team. and like, you know, to see actually everyone go was really, really painful. So I sent out this internal like, you know, message. And then what I did was instead of like, you know, just getting on your call with everybody. And also like everyone internally knew about like, you know, the progress of stuff. And we're like, this thing can actually come down to like, you know, two things. It's either we get more funds or we have to like, you know, lay off everyone. Pretty much, right? Like, and leave, like, you know, the core people that need to, like, you know, keep the business operational. I spoke to a lot of investors, but then when you're raising funds the first time, when you've not started building the business proper or when you've not started getting, like, you know, any traction, pretty much pre seed stage, it's a lot easier. But, like, when you're now raising funds at a point where it's like, what are your numbers like? I don't care about product, I don't care about the kind of product you have, right? Like, how much are you making in revenue? So that's a lot more tougher. That was the situation we're in. And like, you know, one of my biggest mistakes as well was, you know, when raising like the first round, I didn't think about like where I needed to like be to be able to raise the second round. And I think that's something that like founders should actually do, right? Before you touch that first $1,000 from an investor, you need to have like a plan on like, where do I need to be before I break even or like, you know, start making money to like cover OPEX or like, you know, raise ones. I didn't do that. So we did a plan B, plan C. We had to then like, you know, results like laying off like you know employees like you know the deal didn't go through with the proposed lead investor um wasn't because of like you know valuation but where it's aligned at all it became like you know a whole messy situation and this is another like you know mistake i made right like another lesson pretty much right like before that deal i had investors in the door that wanted to give me money but i held them back up because i wanted to like raise a specific amount i stored them and then was focused on this because It was not just going to like bring in 200K. It was going to bring in a million dollars. Plus there was like a commercial agreement to it. So our business movement and sales would have skyrocketed. Our numbers were going to like go insane, right? So my focus was, I'm like, oh, look at my weakness. These guys are coming to like, you know, fix this thing for me, right? So my focus was there. Anyone to like, you know, here that you want to give me money, no, like, you know, hold your phone, right? I'll come back later to it. I think that was also like, I should have just collected any money that came, like, you know, I should have collected it at the point. So it became like a messy situation. We couldn't like, you know, align on like, you know, terms. We had to like call off the deal. That was basically like us resorting to like, you know, plan D, which was having to like lay off our employees. I think that was the toughest moment, I think, in my life where I got to like this point where like, you know, something that I built from ground up, right? Like the reason why... I can't see it, like, you know, progress so was because of like funds, right? Like money pretty much. And it was so emotionally and like, you know, mentally, like, you know, draining. So I sent like, you know, this internal letter to like everyone on the team. And then I asked people to like, you know, schedule like a one-on-one call with me. So instead of like, you know, just sending out the general message that, hey, you like, you know, you're being laid off, right? Like I was like, everyone get on like, you know, a call with me. And sorry, before like we got to like layoff, the management stopped taking salaries first. And then after like a month, I also got on a one-on-one call with the team telling them that, look, we'll have to like slash your salary or we have to like, you know, let you go so that we can actually have more money in the bank. And to my greatest surprise, when I was talking about that, everyone was asking me, how was your mental health, right? They weren't really like, you know, bothered. So for me, like that was like, you know, an extra push to like, you know, go get some more money to keep the ship sailing. So when we got to like plan D, where we had to like resort to like laying off people on the team, I had like, you know, this... Call with them. I remember, like, you know, I cried on the call, but, like, you know, I turned off my camera. Oh, like, you know, I'm a hard guy. Yeah, but, like, you know, I actually cried on the call because it was actually so emotional for me because I had already seen what was not working and what we could, like, you know, fix. And it was beyond my control. So, like, I told the team, and then to my greatest surprise again, and I think this is, like, one of the benefits of, like, being transparent and, like, you know, open is that. If you're a good leader, your team will actually have your back. They will definitely have your back. To my greatest surprise again. Like you know, people were like, "We want to work pro bono. So you don't have to pay us. It doesn't have to like be recorded that like we owe you whatever. We just want to like work pro bono, maybe until like you know when we get some of that job, right?" And I was really amazed by that. I was surprised, but then I told them that like you know, look, in as much as I would love you to you know work pro bono here, you all have lives and you need to start looking for like the next thing to like, you know, do ASAP. Right. And I was like, I'll make it my job within the next two weeks to get you guys another role or at least an interview in like two, three organizations. And I actually did that. It's like, reach out to my network. Are you hiring? Are you hiring? I have like, you know, the best guys. Plug them in. Got to like, you know, interviews. I literally like texted or emailed like, you know, people that I knew that could potentially be hiring to actually hire the guys that worked at Lizard P. So it was like a really emotional one for me. I think at the point where we're like, you know, laying off, we had actually run out of runway. I think until, we had until like December. And what was advised was that we even shut down at the time. But I was like, nah, I'm not going to shut this down. I'm still going to like, you know, see this through. And then like, you know, I was like, okay, how much personal funds do I have? Abdul, how much do you have? And then my parents were aware of, you know, the situation. My dad even offered to, like, you know, sell one of his houses to actually give us funds, to like, invest in a company, right? Or to, like, you know, survive, right? Because, I mean, it was, like, a very heartbreaking one for, like, everyone involved, right? So, December, like, you know, came, like, I was, like, I'm going to, like, you know, push this through that, like, you know, I spoke to Abdul and I spoke to, like, you know, two, three other people that were still on the team. I like, you know, look, we have to, like, do what we have to do. The plan was, like, you know, pivot into, like, the Middle East. We are going to, like, do that, right? So, we kept on going, we're like, we're not going to just turn up the lights on our customers, right? We are going to see that, like, you know, we actually, like, you know, make this stuff work. So that was very, very important for us. And at the time, I wasn't thinking that I'm going to, like, you know, run into, like, personal finance issues, right, where I didn't have, like, you know, I didn't care. I was like, to, like, you know, put everything in. And like, while still doing that, I texted a couple of my friends and I actually borrowed money from my friends, right? To actually keep going. But then we got to the point, I think which was like, you know, in March, April. So we went for like an investor, like, you know, conference that our largest investor invited us for in Kenya. I think then I had lots of clarity. I spoke to my largest investors. I pretty much made peace with the fact that without a lot of money, we can't push this beyond what it is. And like, you know, for something as fragile as crypto, Compliance regulations is something that is supposed to like be on your on like I mean after security, compliance and regulations, right? And for you to like you know get that sorted, you need a lot of money. And then entering into like in a new market. So that was then like we basically made the peace that we're going to like, you know, shut it down. And then I had like you know a one-on-one call with my investors and said, like, you know, look, we've tried, we can't keep going for that. It seemed like you know, our life was just in hold, right? You know, while trying to like you know make this work. We can't continue to like you know push this for that we've tried like, and it's not like, you know, it's not working. And then we just made that decision in April to like shut it down. It was like a very, very hard one. Like before I could actually come to the fact that we're shutting down, it actually took in a lot for me to like, you know, accept that we needed to like, you know, shut down and move on to, you know, other things.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think inside of that story, the entire story, and especially the last, you know, four or five months, there's a lot of key lessons that you learned, some hard-earned lessons right for you as a young founder and you know starting your first company i'm curious to know if there's maybe like a key lesson or one key lesson that you have to take away or you know like one or two key pieces of advice that you have for either you know your younger self or for other young founders who have uh, similar aspirations as you do
0: i have a lot of lessons like you know learned from this and i've and i've gotten to the point where i no longer see laser as a failure but I see us as like, you know, we did our best and we learned lessons, right? We actually learned hard lessons. So I would call it like, you know, lessons instead of like, you know, failure. Yeah, I have like, you know, a lot. So there's this book I read while going through all this stuff, hard things about hard things. So I started reading it this year. But like when I traveled to like, you know, London, my friend, CEO of Lori Lori's system, you know, he saw me, I was like a total mess. So that was when I was trying to like raise money. And he hugged me for like five minutes. <laughs> and he was like, I can see that you're going through. Well, he, he now recommended the book. Say, read this book, Hard Things About Hard Things. But then, like, you know, in the spot of the moment, like, I need money. I don't want to, like, you know, read any book. Did you guess? <laughs> so, so I, like, you know, dropped the book one side and I went to, like, you know, that's all. But, like, you know, later, Yale recommended it again. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I'm not looking for money so I can actually, like, you know, read it. That was when I started, like, you know, getting, like, you know, comfortable with the fact that we're going to, like, you know, shut down the company. So back to like lessons, one key one for me was that if I will start this again, the way I was like you know taking product development, I'll take business development and sales that seriously. It doesn't have to be enterprise sales. Like I'll take BD and business development is not just about selling to enterprise. Business development is also like looking at your market, tweaking like you know business models, talking to like you know the product team as well. Like you know basically building that like very intertwined and close relationship between like the business development team and like the product team, right? So I had like this definition of like product led growth in my head. And I thought I was like, you know, operating like a product, like you know, led growth organization. And then as I started reading stuff and like, you know, started experiencing like you know these things, now it became like you know clear that, oh fuck, I've been doing the wrong thing, right? Where I was abstracting product development from like, you know, BD and sales, but in the real sense of like, you know, product led growth, sales bd compliance regulations growth marketing everything had to like come down to like you know product development so product development needed to be at the center of all these things happening that's literally the definition of product growth. they're not saying ignore bd or ignore sales they're like at the center of like you know your product organization needs to be at the center of every other thing happening That's like no product is going to like go out there without like a bd team saying oh How can we tweak this business model to work? And regulations is like, oh no, in this market, we'll potentially run into like XYZ issues, right? Why don't we try all that stuff, right? So it was like, we're just building. There wasn't this close relationship between BD and product team. So next time, like, you know, the way I take product building seriously, I'm going to like, you know, take business development, business operations really, really seriously as well. So I think like founders should not ignore that part of the business because a great product without a good business model or a good business is a bad business in general. And you're not just building a product, you're building a business. So founders and me, myself, if I'm starting another thing again, like, that would be like, you know, the first lesson like, you know, I'm bringing to like, you know, what I'm building next. So I would say the second part lesson was actually around high bond pretty much, right? Uh, was that we didn't need to like, you know, spend that much to achieve all what it like achieve. When I look back at it in like, you know, retrospect, I'm like, we could have actually achieved the same thing with like, a team of 10 people and not like a team of 25 people. So the problem wasn't even how much we're paying salaries. I think like, you know, when the media thing came out and we're like, oh, why why are you paying this much? I'm like, you know, they have to like be very, very comfortable. So it wasn't really about how much we're spending on like, you know, employees, but it was more around like the number of employees like, you know, needed to actually take. Again, and that's like, you know, the other lesson I talked about, right? like, Whenever you're taking money or whenever you're starting a business, right? You need to like, you know, know where you want to be in like the next one year, next two years. That goal must be very clear. And it's like, when that goal is set, it's like, what do we need to get here? And how much will it cost for us to like, you know, get to like this point? And like, you know, track every single data. No data should be left untracked, right? Or monitored, right? Track every single thing and make sure that you're actually on track to actually achieving your goals. The goal remains the same, but like what you do daily is like you know very important so that guy will actually affect and control how much you spend and it's like you don't have to like you know hire twenty five five people you know that so what we need to like get to x points to make xyz is two people is three people these are like you know the number of people that we need to like get that stuff done right so that's very important as well like you know having a sense of where you want to be in the next two years five years ten years and like planning based on that so we didn't really need like you know that much people on the team And then, like, you know, another lesson I learned that we applied, which I'm going to, like, you know, apply again and apply over again is, like, you know, lesson of, like, communicating, like, with your investors, being totally transparent and being totally, like, you know, open, whatever you're actually, like, you know, doing within the organization, right? It's not, like, without your team and without, like, everybody being in the know of, like, what's going on, then that's the beginning of, like, you know, chaos in your organization. So that's something that, like, you know, we're very open, we're very transparent. That's something, like, you know, we did really well. And we prioritized our customers as well. So that's also something great that we actually, like, you know, did well. Our customers were, like, you know, number one on, like, you know, our funnel, right? So we prioritized them, made sure that if they run into any issues, we, like, you know, fix instantly, we listen to them and, like, you know, iterate as we go. So we actually had, like, a very, very good structure with, like, you know, listening to, like, you know, customers and making the product and the platform work for them.
3: Thank you. I want to close with a thought, which is a question that you have received a lot, I'm sure. I've received from people who are asking me like if, if, if I can get in your head, and I, I obviously can't. But the question is, what's next? And maybe I, maybe I also rephrase that by saying, are you still feeling optimistic about the future of crypto in Africa?
0: I got into crypto in 2019. So my entire career around crypto has not been about buying and selling shit coins or like, you know, trying to like make money from crypto. My entire career around crypto has been that like, you know, I see what this technology can do. And I'm like, how can we leverage this technology to actually like bring a lot of impact and value to like our society? So there's just a lot of value that can be created from crypto and blockchain technology in general. So it's not even about price of Ethereum or the price of Bitcoin. That never concerns me, right? So whether there's like, you know, bull market or a bear market, my stance on crypto remains the same, right? I'm very, very bullish about crypto and I'm also bullish about payments and like, you know, stable coins, right? Like, you know, you can see how crypto can actually bring borders in Africa actually together, right? Where people can like, you know, move money around the world instantly. Like, you know, I can send 10,000 USD, 100,000 USD to like, you know, someone in Singapore sitting from like you know my my house in Portacols like and it gets to them like you know in one minute drive which other technology does that right so crypto has a lot of potential and I'm still bullish about potentials of crypto and it's now my life's mission to, like you know see that like you know we actually like drive the adoption of crypto globally and in Africa
1: and you didn't answer the question what's next though
0: ah okay. <laughs> so I get this question a lot and you know when people are asking like you know what's next what's, And I'm like, you guys should just chill, right? Like I'm um, coming out of this thing, I'm still trying to like process more of my thoughts and like, you know, get like things together pretty much and also like get my finances and all that because like, you know, laser fee drained everything pretty much. Right. So what's next for me, I don't know. I don't know what I'll be doing in like, you know, the next two years. I don't know what I'll be doing in the next five years. But like, you know, one thing is sure, and I also like, you know, said that what I know how to like do best is actually like, you know, build stuff um, build solutions for like, you know, problems. And I'll keep doing that. But like the exact thing I'm doing next, I don't really know. So for me it's like, you know, taking time to like, you know, think about like the lessons learned and just reflect on what has happened and like, you know, get better and also like, you know, gather more experience as well. So like, you know, do whatever comes next.
1: Absolutely. Well said. So I think we should leave it there and just wrap up today's discussion. But Injoku, on behalf of Square and me, we really appreciate you joining us and telling the story. I hope it wasn't too painful to recount some of those memories. But everyone is still interested in what's next. They'll give you the time and the space. But with LaserPay shutting down, where can more people follow along on your journey and see whatever's next for you?
0: I think Twitter for me, NjokuScript on Twitter. I think NjokuScript like you know, on all like you know my social media accounts, GitHub. Yeah, GitHub, like, you know everything in Jokuscript.
1: And you can find us on Twitter at Crypto at Scale. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do hit that follow button on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube and share with a friend or colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. Njoku, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate
0: it.
3: Thanks, Njoku. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys.